I was born actually in North Tanzania, um, on the region called Mara, and I went to school in that region, somewhere called Tarime, and not a Tarime town, but somewhere inside the countryside. Oh, so you were close to Kenya? Yes. Actually, the school I went, it was um, in, on the border between Tanzania and Kenya. So I spent there for the my first primary school and the secondary school. I finished there after secondary school, then I moved to the city. That is where I went for my high school for two years there. Secondary school I spent four years, and primary school I spent for seven years. I went to high school in Dar es Salaam. Oh, huh. Yeah, well, you sure did go to the city. <laughs> yeah, it's a big city. So I did my high school there, and I first performed to go to a, to a law school, uh, the university, in Muzumbe University. So I spent there for three years for my law degree. So um, after I went from my high school, I mean to the university in, in Muzumbe, I finished my law and immediately when I saw my brother came here to United States, I told him that I would need to come to do my master program in United States. So he said, all you need is just to perform well in your high, in your undergrad, and then you can, we can try to follow the procedure to apply. So when he was here, he told me about the different kind of universities, the procedure on how to apply, the requirements, the GPA that they need. So I had to work over there to make sure that I meet those requirements. Is it common for people to come to the States to finish their education? No, actually it's very difficult. It's not common and it is very, very difficult. It's just, I would say, privilege to some of us or blessed. We are kind of blessed to some of us to get that opportunity because especially when to the family where I came from, there's no way that you can easily get it, get an opportunity to come here. So uh, after I graduated, I had to go and work for, I, I worked for the NGO, that is uh, Human Rights, Center for Human Rights, and then I worked at the law firm. I worked for the, for the law firm uh, about six months, and then I worked for another, uh, for the NGO for about one year and a half. It's a human right. Oh, okay. Legal and Human Rights Center. It's mm-hmm. a very big NGO there in Tanzania dealing with the human rights. You were an intern at a law office. What kind of law did they specialize in? The law office was generally about any litigation that we took. So I was doing some of what was on civil cases that I was dealing with, mostly I would say. And that was basically, sometimes I was assigned to uh, to the land um, land uh, disputes that if they have clients that were dealing with the land. Oh, they, land marriage, disputes. Uh, oh. Mm-hmm. Yes. And other contractual um, litigations that I had to attend. So there was kind of mixed. But when I was in a legal and human rights center, I was specifically dealing with the law, um, the human rights issues, any kind of violation with that the land laws, the marriage, and other, um, because it was non-profit organization, so it was basically working with the poor, I would say marginalized people, 
who cannot afford to hire a lawyer. Right, like our so legal aid. So it was a different kind of area. They will tell you to work on this, work in that, work in that. So that's how I used to receive those cases. Well, it sounds like it was good practice because you got a variety of topics and different kinds yeah. of, of issues. Yes, it really helped. So then tell me about coming to the United States and what kind of studying you're doing now. My plan initially was to come and start the human rights. And I ha- I appointed the University of Minnesota come and do my Master in Human Rights there, but for some reason, oh, I was unable to get the scholarship on that university. So I had to go with this cause that was very close to what I was thinking about, is social responsibility. So he told me about the University of um, St. Cloud here, and I had to apply. They have this program called the uh, Master in Social Responsibility, of which it was dealing across all those kind of human rights, environments, and all of that. So I applied for that, and I was fortunate enough to get the scholarship too. So I moved here to United States in 2011. I'm sorry, what's the name of the university you're at? St. Cloud State University. Uh I did my master program here in Master of Social Responsibility, and... From there, I wanted to get a doctorate, but my by then, I wanted to try to merge the social responsibility with my background in law. So I was thinking, I was thinking for the University of Minnesota because also they had the program, which was called the social legal kind of program that they deal with society and law, basically. I applied to it again. I get an admission, but the funding was not also sufficient. But I applied in multiple position, and I applied also here at university. I sent Cloud State University. I applied on the education. Um, this one, my my goal was connected again with the thesis which I was doing in in my master program. So I said maybe I can get a doctorate in higher education administration, which will give me the tools to do research that can help me in the legal research when I'm doing my thing. My um, legal try to connect the law and education and society. All of those have combined those together. So I said, okay, I get the admission for this position, I mean for this uh, program and the scholarship too. So I took it. So my job was how to merge and make something that can make together the higher education, society, and the law in relation to Tanzania. Uh huh. So yes. your goal is to build civil society through um, curriculum such as uh, social entrepreneurship and social responsibility, but matching it with uh, training for legal training. Yes. Well, that's a tall order. That's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. And so now, where are you in this process? You're now um, close to defending your work? Yes. Right now, I am close to defending my work. I am waiting for my advisor to see my my dissertation draft right now. Um, actually, this week, I'm going to send it to him. 
and then I will wait to see. But my plan is to graduate this spring semester, May. Oh, so soon, right. Yes. So how do, let's jump right in. How would the country of Tanzania improve its curriculum to include critical thinking skills and social entrepreneurship, that sort of thing, um, the way that Uganda has done? They've built it into the curriculum. But this would be fairly new for Tanzania, right, to move from rote learning to critical thinking. Yeah, um, I haven't read much about Uganda, but um, basically the history of our education is a little bit contributed with the socioeconomic and I would say um, ideological development for the country in relation to the curriculum. Because um, Tanzania, after we gained independence in 1961, the government was focusing on the socialist kind of society that that we have to rely on ourselves. Like everything was kind of a communal ownership. So the curriculum in the education in general was designed based on we used to call them ujama, the kind of a villagization, like we all live together. When we create the education, the curriculum was based on how these people can solve the problems from their own community. So the word Jamal is um, Ujamal. Ujamal is yes. a, a, an idea of collective well-being. Yes, like all together for our own, helping each other. Actually, it came into practice in 1967 when they declared the Arusha Declaration. So it was the kind of the policy that the government passed, and all the curriculum that need to be used at school, they have match the line of Arusha Declaration, which was basically the socialism, the Ujamaa. So from there, that is quite different from the other country, I would say. But due to the economic and political and social issues that arise from 19, I would say probably 1990s, there are some different kind of things that happen in the country, and these were included. There was a war between Uganda and Tanzania in 1979 and 78. There was also um, the economic hardship. There was invasion of the structural adjustment policy. So all of these situations or circumstances led to change the system of Tanzania and actually declined the Ujamaa socialization. Now, the IMF entered the situation in the 1980s. How did the International Monetary Fund um, affect education? Yes, and that's the point where I was going with this. So in 1990s, basically 1992, when we adopted the structural adjustment policy, we had to comply with the World Bank and the IMF requirements, conditions. So that is the point when the World Bank and IMF conditions come to affect the education. So basically in socialism, the government was giving, was responsible for education. But after the invasion of the IMF and the World Bank, 
one of the conditions was to privatize the education institutions, the social services, and the government should take itself away from funding or reducing the funding on the education. So the IMF and the World Bank money was actually putting those conditions and let the government that to stay away and let the private institution to run themselves. Did they give any justification for this? Did they think it would be more um, economically frugal? Yes. Um, they actually say that that was more economical for the government. Instead of government spending so much money on, in particular, they say the higher education, in social service, they say that instead of spending all money on the higher education, then it's better that you can spend some of the money on the primary education. So they shift the purpose of education in Tanzania from higher education that to the government to educate the all level, instead focus on the primary education. And also, on issue about the uh, the curriculum, the IMF they were driven by the human development of resources, while we had the concept of a human development capacity, that we were only focusing on giving people the capacity to solve the community problem, and this included at all level. But the World Bank and IMF, when they come with the introduction of a human development resources, they are only focused about the resources of the few people, like if we focus on giving the primary education, people the primary education, the basic education that they need, they will be able to transform their community and reduce the poverty in the country. Instead of educating the primary education and also the higher education. So they wanted us to focus on only giving primary education to the community to solve their own problem. That's that's a kind of human development resources versus the human um development capacity. That was the main difference between our policy before and the invasion. Plus, they had to change with the different curriculums. They had to intervene about the provisions of certain programs that we need to teach because when they bring money, they will tell you maybe you need to use this money on teaching about AIDS, for example that you need to introduce about teaching AIDS. It's not bad to teach about AIDS, but there are some other issues that we can also teach. But their money, they make it priority on the certain programs that you can teach. So they were really controlling things. They felt AIDS was important, so you must now yes. concentrate just on that. So there was a lack of control within the country. IMF people decided what was needed in the curriculum. Huh? That's yes, that's what they're doing right now. They're controlling everything, and it was the same thing which was actually during the colonial education. Mm. I just didn't go through that, but on the colonial education, it was exactly the same thing that the IMF and World Bank that they are doing now. But now they're just doing through their money because they have those financial muscles, then they can do it on what they want. Was the tradition of having higher education be the instruction be in English, was that part of the colonial influence? The younger grades are still using Swahili, but then it switches to English when you get to higher education. Yes. Actually, they just passed another policy in 2015. Actually, it came 
into practice 2015. And it has been the long debate about the language that can be used in our country. But there is a reason that the, these funders, they put in there about using the English. Because my research is something which I'm actually doing. It's part of it that the use of English in our education, it's the continuation of implementing the new liberalism policies. It's still planned the ideas and the perceptions of our education based on the colonial reason that existed before. That means we use the, the books from Western countries. Some of the donors, they provide books, and those books come from their own country. They bring it there. We don't have the books in there. At the same time, if you look on the institutions, that if they want to pass a certain, uh, let's say if you're a professor, you want to write and publish something. When you publish, they will look, where did you publish this? Which language did you use to publish this? How do they recognize that? So it's all part and parcel of their new liberalism projects. I call them projects. It's not the coincidence when they're putting this. So the language that we use, though the new policy says that you can either use Swahili or you can use English, but at what point can you use Swahili and English? The government didn't say. It's left to the discretion of the country. But we know that from primary education, we use Swahili. All of a sudden, from secondary, we use English, which has become the very problematic situation for students. Just like me, you come from very poor, um, I would say, school, that we don't have enough teachers who know this English, and then all of a sudden you are told to go to secondary school and they want you to speak English. That must be an enormous challenge. At what age would children suddenly be asked to know English or to study in English? Before 2015 police, the children were supposed to get into standard one at seven years of age. So when they turn seven, they were supposed to go to standard one. They go till standard seven. That means they finish standard seven when they were 14 years old. So they go to form one, we call there, like first year in secondary school, when they are almost 15. So from 15, they ask you to start another language. But now they change just a little bit. It's different, but it's almost the same thing because the student here started standard one when they are age of six instead of seven, which you used before. So you can see it's almost the same. But mm -hmm. they didn't say that you cannot use English. But we know that the government school, they use Swahili. So, Only the private school, they use English from standard one all the way up. Oh, so the private schools are, are trying to close the gap a little bit. So when a 14 or 15-year-old suddenly finds himself studying in English, yeah. is there a big dropout rate right there? Because that, must, that sounds like a big barrier to suddenly read and orally communicate in another language. And, and not skip a beat in terms of the curriculum that they're learning. Yeah, there's a lot of different statistics about the dropping out and the passing and all of that, in, especially come to education in Tanzania. And there's so many factors that are contributing to that. So they haven't given out the specific factor that this dropout or the 
enrollment of secondary school was lower just because of the using English. Because they're saying that they passed them based on Swahili. But if you look the students who were enrolled in secondary school, which is for four years, and you come later to look on those students who come to be enrolled in high school, there are few students who were enrolled in high school compared to those who started first year in secondary school. But we know that one of the challenges is English, that they cannot pass the secondary test because they are tested in English. They passed it well in primary education because they were tested in Swahili. Uh. When it comes to secondary, they are tested in English. So they are able to go to the um, high school, from secondary school to high school, is lower compared to from primary school to secondary school. And when you get to secondary school, again, the, the passing, it's even lower because the more they go there, there's so many factors, but one of the factors we know that is somebody who goes through that, I know how difficult it is from there to high school because one of the challenges is English. And there's one NGO try to explain about this, but the government is like lip-tied. They cannot speak. Everybody, if you ask people, they will tell you that they want, they want Swahili. If we put Swahili, people will pass, will do well in school that we know that but the government is hesitant to adopt they're saying that we lack words that's their main argument that you that lack, we lack words we lack swahili words uh-huh. in many, like vocabulary like vocabulary to teach in our language so they're unwilling to do that and for that i know it's behind for this i know it's behind about the world bank imf there's so many things going behind there Yes, it sounds like it's complicated. And is it kind of a, a political divide, those who want to have Swahili be the language of instruction throughout the years, and then a group of people who want to keep the English in the secondary level? Is there sort of a political divide there? Um, I would not say that it's more political, Maybe it's the way they try to tell people the possibility of that. But if you look to many people, the reality, I will call it the reality, that many people would want this. But it's also in the mind of people. Many people think that if you know English, then you're educated. That is there. Oh, I see, yeah. That's the first thing come to their mind. If you know English, you're educated. The government is kind of reluctant to adapt to that. Yeah, it's almost a status thing, I guess, that you would gain more respect in status if you're speaking English. Oh, dear. That's yeah. too bad. Mm. So it's a little bit complicated when it comes to the language of instruction in Tanzania. So many research have been done, and most of the research they support about using Swahili. So the questions come, why government is reluctant to adopt Swahili? There was so much pressure in 2006 when they started collecting the data for the policy that they come to publish in 2014. That's why you can use both languages. They didn't want to say you can use English because the pressure from the people within the country, they wanted Swahili. 
So the government, they say, okay, instead of using just ways, they say use both language. Why they don't want to say that you use only Swahili? That's why we say there's pressure. There are powerful people behind. And to me, these are the World Bank. I call them IFIs, the World Bank. So many people who sponsor education because even the policy that we pass, it is not that we pass that policy. They detect that policy. Yes, it's trying to come up with a, quote, solution that everybody will like, but it's not much of a solution, particularly if, as you say, the publishing is all dominated by English. If most books are published outside the country and then English books are used, that's going to be a barrier. Is there a movement to have more Swahili textbooks published? They haven't made any other like movement for people they want to publish in Swahili, because the books that we have few people who are actually trying to publish books in Swahili. We have some of the books in Swahili for primary school, but we don't have books in Swahili in secondary school or high school. Only very few books in 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 in, in university. So the movement about publishing things in Swahili. Even people, that cannot be done by the government. If people do that, they know that they cannot sell it. Because if you publish, if I publish my book in Swahili, let's say in in mathematics for high school level, or let's say algebra, while well, I know that they were not going to use this book because in or secondary school, they use algebra in English terms. They test them in English. So if I publish my book in Swahili, explaining about the concepts of algebra. Nobody's going to buy that book. So it even discouraged the private people who want to publish books in Swahili. Yes. And it's unfortunate that the people, they haven't like pushed the government to publish books because most of the books that are not published by the government, they receive as the donation, like from these donor countries. Let's say the um, programs about AIDS, for instance. So the books that we'll have there, when they use in, in school, they will come from other country that they've published. So they come and donate it, donate those books. Yeah, so you bring up the whole thing that the algebra, for example, the algebra exam would have to be also offered in Swahili as well as English to be able to... Oh, that's difficult. Are there published secondary books in Swahili from South Africa? How does South Africa solve this? We have... There are some books that come from South Africa, but in terms of English, because we know they speak English. So there are some books, like the university, they get in terms of either donation, they usually go through the Ministry of Education. They say uh, Sweden's people aids, there's American people aids, there's Danida, this is Danish aid. So there's so many countries and organizations that they support the development. And part of it, when it comes to education, they some provide funds, some provide materials, this like books. So whenever the government needs a particular maybe books, their first assistance, they look to this organization. Mm-hmm. Because people there don't publish. So it would take a government effort to change things, to get yeah, control back. Yeah, only government back. can change. Right. So the but control- the government are tied also because they are tied with the police. 
with the policies of, of the IMF, for example, and so forth. Yeah. 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 So to get control, really, of the curriculum, I guess the way would be for the government to step aside from the funding. Well, that sounds tough. Yeah, because when we get independence, we didn't have the budget or saving that, okay, now we get independence, we have this saving. It started, it, it was the process, which was to me, it's a project that is continuing till today. We keep getting loans from these people. They give us loans. They give it, they come with the conditions. So those conditions, they keep growing. And the more the conditions growing, the more controlling these organizations take over. And that now we are, we found ourselves in this trap that we cannot make this policy of education because these people, they contribute almost 50% of our, of, of our development budget. So if you have someone who is contributing almost 50% of your development budget, that means when he gives you money, he wants to know how you are going to use it. Oh, yes. And he tells you, go using this and that. So in education, we will not say that, okay, I'm going to use this money in education. He says, oh, for this one, I don't think this is important for now. I think you use this money on this area. So they're kind of telling you on how to use it. Yeah. yeah. And that's how they're controlling many African countries now. Yeah, the person who has the purse strings calls the tune, as we say. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. 